Will you go with me to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark? We're gonna be in the 10th chapter. It will be on the screen here behind me. You can follow along in your Bibles. If you've got your Bible with you or your app or it's in your bulletin, there's so many ways to be present as we hear the word of God proclaimed from the book of Mark, from the gospel of Mark. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do, he replied. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I baptize, I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Well, then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or my left, that is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant and or angry with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Let it not be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. It's funny, I I put in my translation here um, a a different word, or a different translation, NRSV, on the screen we have NIV, but the idea that they were made angry, it's interesting, isn't it? We're gonna sit with that a little bit this morning as we continue our series called Life Together. And if you haven't um, been with us, we are journeying through a book together called um, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, we're journeying through it through the lens of what does it mean to be in community together? The first week Robbins was with us and we just talked about how good it is to be a church, a people, a group united by the Holy Spirit. Last week we, we sat with the idea of solitude and what is the difference between solitude and isolation and how a day apart actually informs our life with other people. It's hard for me because I don't like spending time alone, but I need that in order to be a better brother to you all, a better pastor to you all. I need to spend time alone. Today, though, this morning, we're going to be sitting with the idea of ministry. This chapter is actually called Ministry, chapter four. If you're reading the book, you, um, um, you, you're, there's a lot more going on there than just I'm glossing over the surface. It's a great book. Again, Life Together. It's not required reading to come to church, I promise, but it does um, add to what we're talking about in our sermons. And I have to tell you, I started my sermon prep on Monday, as I always do. And I was prepared, I always like go through the sermon first in my mind before I start writing things down on Wednesday. And in my mind, I hadn't even reread the chapter yet. I, haven't gone, I hadn't gone through my scripture yet. I just started kind of like, oh, I know what I'm gonna do. It's about ministry. I know a lot about ministry. It's literally my job. I can talk about that really. You know, I can, maybe I'll bring in first Corinthians about how we're all different parts in one body and when God's given us different gifts to be able to do this and you do that and he does that and she does this and we all do things together and it's all about doing and doing. And, and, and then on Monday, I read through the chapter again and, and this book, it, I've, I've read it three times and God continues to use it to speak into my life. Like, hey, let's, let's reset a little bit. Let's, let's reframe a few things. And I realized how off base I was in trying to figure out what God wanted us to talk about this morning when it came to the ideas of ministry. We are a people who are always quick to do 
and often forget who God calls us to be. And so with that in mind, this series has, um, has led me to be a little more confessional in, in a few different ways. Last week I talked about my confession of, I just am not very good at spending time alone. Today I need to confess one more thing to you. I am not the most humble person you've ever met. And that might not come as a surprise to many of you. I'm not the most arrogant person you've ever met either, I don't think, but I'm definitely not the most humble person you've ever met. Sometimes I walk around as if my theme song is The World's Greatest by R. Kelly, or All I Do Is Win, All I Do Is Win, 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 No Matter What. I mean, I could feel like sometimes in life I just get kind of consumed by my own, you know, thoughts about myself that I just picture that song playing as I walk around. Like, yeah, I'll do that. Don't worry, it'll be fine. You know, I can take everything on myself and I'll get it done. I'll get it done. It mostly stems from our human condition to always want to be right. I think that's where arrogance comes from. You know, I say a lot that there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. And one that I I probably float way too close and lean way too far to the arrogant side more often than not. And that's something that God has to remind me of because it's hard to humble ourselves, isn't it? Or to even know that we need to be humbled. This idea of humility, it's difficult because we have this human propensity to want to be right and to want to be correct and to have the authority and be the person in charge. And and like, we don't like it when people tell us we're wrong. Like when you get told we're wrong, that's humbling, isn't it? And it doesn't feel good. I'll tell you, I am not a good driver. I'm just not. And I try to be, I'm trying to be better, but I just, it's mostly just because I'm not very good at directions. And so I never know where I'm going. If the sun is in the sky, I can tell you which way is east, north, south, or west. But other than that, like I'm lost. I've used a GPS every day for the past four and a half months. And sometimes to get home from the church. Brianna's favorite thing to laugh about about me when it comes to my lack of directional abilities is we will be driving somewhere on an interstate and pull off for gas. And without fail, I will almost always get back on the interstate the way we came from, thinking that was the way I was supposed to. So if we're going north, I'll get back on going south. And she just lets me do it now because she just thinks it's funny. Like she didn't like stop it. No, 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 we need to go the other way. It's happened so many times that she just, now I'm very cognizant of it. I have to ask, which way am I supposed to go? North or south? It was, it, I was not always able to admit that I had this, you know, lack of humility in this one particular area. And I'll tell you how it came to head, how I finally realized, okay, I'm just not as good as I think I am. It was, um, we were late for not one, not two, but three weddings in a row in our first year of marriage because of my inability to give up my, 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 my desire to do the directional navigating myself. I would not let her pull out the GPS. I would not let her tell me where we needed to go. I was like, no, I got this. I'm the husband. I've got it figured out. I know where I'm going. You know, I can drive. And by the time that we were late to a wedding in my own hometown of Dothan, because I got lost, where I lived 18 years of my life and I learned how to drive, I got lost on a wet to go to a wedding in Dothan. Finally, I was like, we were sneaky, y'all. This is terrible. It was an outdoor wedding. And we were sneaking in the back, trying to be, but the, the bride was late too. And it was like this really long distance between like where the chairs are and where like the wedding party came in. And so like the wedding party's marching down from this way and we're like coming in. So everybody sees us. And it was at that moment, I'm like, all right, we can use the GPS next time. <laughs> I will no longer have to be right about everything all the time. Cause it was horrible, right? I mean, it was embarrassing. And, and it took that experience for me to finally say this one area of my life, maybe I'm not as great at as I like to think I am. You know, I, I think we all have areas like that in our life where we have blind spots because we just feel like we have to be the greatest. We have to be the best. 
Our family expects this of us. Our parents expect this of us. Our coworkers, you know what? Even if I'm not bad at it, I'm not gonna admit I'm bad at it. I'm better than everybody else. Do you have an area of like that in your life that you just feel like, you know what? I, no, I'm never gonna admit it that I might not be as great as I want people to think I am. I, I think James and John is, are experiencing something similar in their mind as we enter our text this morning from the book of Mark. The sons of Zebedee are coming before Jesus and, and they... It's a very strange encounter. It's very presumptuous, pretentious. You know, as we enter the story, Mark's gospel is split into two major sections. That which happens around the Sea of Galilee in the north and all the events that happen in and around Jerusalem in the south. And chapter 10 is kind of the dividing line. Everything before chapter 10 happens in the Galilee. Everything after that happens in Jerusalem. And this is the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And on the way there, a very interesting encounter happens where the sons of Zebedee, they come up to Jesus and they speak to him, they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine telling Jesus that, like in your prayer time, like Jesus, you better do this for me, I want you to do whatever I ask. And this is made only slightly better in the version of Mark, because in Matthew's version, if you, if you know, sometimes there's gospel parallels where, where you'll see the same story in different gospels, but slightly different. In Matthew's version, is James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, can you give my sons favor? Make them, give them whatever they want. And it would be like, um, it would be like if you're a kid and you're at the ball field and your parent starts like yelling at the coach, like my kid needs more playing time. Like maybe you've done that for you. I'm just gonna say, um, I, don't, I don't have a child that is born yet, um, but I was a child once and I still act like a child every day. And, uh, and that's not cool, don't be that parent. That's just, this is my pastoral advice for the day. As great as your children are at sports, um, don't be the parent that yells at the coach because that just, it's bad for your kid. Because I remember, see now, I remember what it felt like to witness other people have to go through this. My parents didn't bother wasting the breath to tell my coaches to put me in for more playing time because they knew I wasn't any good. So it, done, it wouldn't have helped at all if my parents yelled at the coach. But other parents yelled at the coach. It was like in that scene, uh, remember the Titans, where they pull Ryan Gosling out. He's like, he's taking Alan out. You can't do that. Just, just don't be that parent. Because that's literally what James and John's mom are doing, is doing in the book of Matthew. And so in the gospel of Mark, though, the mom's not in this scene. It's just James and John. And they come to Jesus and they treat him like he is Aladdin, the genie from Aladdin. Like, give us our wish, oh Jesus. And they come up to him and, and they say, Give us whatever we ask. And Jesus is so much more gracious than we are. I'd have been like, man, please. I'm not, don't talk to me that way, I'm Jesus. But Jesus is not me, which is for the best for all of us. And Jesus, not responding the way I would, says to them, he says, what is it that you want from me? What can I do for you? And then they say to Jesus, will you grant us to sit at your right hand and the left in glory? Basically, they're saying to Jesus, we want you to put us above everybody else. We want you to show everybody that we're the greatest. We deserve the honor. Put us in places and positions of power and authority because next to you, we wanna be the greatest of all of your followers. And Jesus responds to them. He says, you have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. He asked them, can you drink the cup I'm gonna drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm gonna be baptized with? They say, yeah, of course. Yeah, we got that. No, no worries, we got that. Just give us what we want. Just, we'll do whatever you say. Just give us what we want. And Jesus says, well... You can drink the cup I was drinking. You can be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with. But he said, my right hand and the seat of my left hand are not mine to give. And in Matthew's gospel, they tell us that it's only the Father that can give it to them for whom it has been prepared. 
And what is not surprising about this story is that the other 10 witnessed what was going on and man, were they mad. Man, were they upset. It even says they were angry with what James and John did. They were angry because these guys kind of circumvented the groups. They went around the rules to try to tell Jesus what they wanted. And so James and John are, are, are going behind the other guys' backs and it says that there rose amongst them, just a couple of verses earlier, there rose amongst them a reasoning as to which of them is the greatest. So even in the book of Mark, this is not the first time this has come up. This is not the first time this, this conversation about which of us is the greatest has come up. It's happened here. It happens again later. They're very concerned with, with who is the best. Who's the world's greatest? And I think it won't be the last time that we ask that question either. How can we be seen as the greatest? Jesus concludes this encounter by saying this, and this is really where we're gonna be today. This is where we're sitting. You know that among the Gentiles, those who recognize you as, as them as rulers, they lord their authority over those whom they rule. But this is not so among you all. Whoever wishes to become great must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was what I was talking about on Monday when God reminded me it's not always about what gifts you've got, how great you are, what you can bring, what you can do. But Jesus reminds us who we are called to be. And unsurprisingly, this is how Bonhoeffer structures his fourth chapter about ministry. See, we have a tendency to think in life that the greatest means to have all the answers, to be the boss of the company, to, to make all the decisions, to be the, the person of authority, to be the best means that, that everyone respects you and that they're envious of you and they want what you have. And, and to be the greatest can mean that, that some of your skills have allowed you to ascend to a place of notoriety or that you were born into a well-connected family or that you made something of yourself when you were nothing. We have this idea, and I'll quote DJ Khaled one more time, that hashtag we the best. And we get there because people see us as the best. But Jesus actually says, everything you thought about greatness is wrong. But you have no idea what you're asking for. The first will be last and the last will be first. If you try to sit at the head of the table, you'll be asked to move to the end. But if you humble yourself and sit at the end, you'll be invited to the front. To be great does not mean to lord your authority of who you are over others, but to recognize others as greater than ourselves. As products of a culture, we're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? This is not greatness. This is worstness. Why do I want to be last when I've worked so hard to be first? Bonhoeffer picks up this theme and he runs with it. And, and that's why I said, you know, this chapter of ministry is so different than the sermon I started with. He, he starts his chapter not about how to do ministry, but what it means for us to be people who are ministers because God has called all of us to be ministers, not just clergy people. Hey, like spoiler alert, the people who are clergy are not the only people who are doing the work of God in the world. We are all doing the work of God in the world, which means we are all ministers. Have you ever thought about that? Thought about, have you ever thought of yourself as a minister? I mean, maybe not vocationally. I'm not, you don't have to come sit in my office. I mean, you can if you want, we can hang out. But you, might, you don't have to quit your job, and if you want to, you can do that too. But you don't have to. Who you are as a, as a person in this room who is you know, trying out Jesus and am I a Christian or maybe even journeying for a long time, we are all called to be in ministry. But at our core as humans, we have this natural tendency to pit ourselves against other people. We compare ourselves to others, don't we? We have this innate human characteristic within us to see how we size up to others. 
How do I compare to this other person? I'm constantly thinking, am I as smart as this person? Is this person smarter than me? Because that's something I care about and I shouldn't, but I do. And it's my, you know, my sinfulness, my humanity. I'm always thinking, is this person smarter than me? I want to be smart. But have you ever been maybe, you know, had an aggressive tendency or been a middle school boy and somebody causes you offense? And so what do you immediately do? You size the person up. Can I beat him up? The answer for me more often than not was no. But I always ask the question, how do I stack up against this person? The core foundational idea of ministry is how we see ourselves compared to others. And when we lean towards our propensity to see ourselves as greater than others, we fail to be the ministers God has called us to be. We fail to understand what ministry is. But I wanna highlight as we kind of wrap up here, just three things that for us to leave with and think about when it comes to being people who do ministry and who are ministers. And the first is, the ministry of holding one's tongue, right, tough, the ministry of meekness, and the ministry of listening. Now, Bonhoeffer has seven categories, subsections in the book itself, but these are the three that I think are really, that spoke to me, and they're kind of the foundational pieces of what it means for all of us to be people who do ministry. The ministry of holding one's tongue is to recognize that even if someone is not around, we do harm to that person and ourselves when we speak ill or condescending of them, even in their absence. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I'm guilty of that still. When we speak poorly of somebody and talk about how bad they are or the errors of their ways or their failures or their sins, you know what we're really doing? We're going through a process of self-justification. I want you to think about this. Oftentimes, when we compare ourselves to others and talk about others as being terrible people, we're doing it to make us feel better about the things that we have faults with in and of ourselves. How many times I can't, I mean, have you thought, man, you know, I might have lied, but at least I'm not like Woods. At least I didn't do that. Or, you know, sure, sure, I'm a sinner and, and I did something I wasn't supposed to do, but at least I'm not like her. At least I'm not like him. Have you ever thought of that? when we compare ourselves to others is self-justification. When we do that, we bring to our tongues this ability or this tendency to speak terrible about our sisters and brothers just so that we can feel better about ourselves. This is not a supportive accountability way of talking. This is a way that often comes out just of, of our innate humanity that says we need to feel better about ourselves, so let's talk worse about others. He says, though, the spirit of self-justification can be overcome by the spirit of grace. When the spirit of grace is at work, strong and weak, wise and foolish, gifted and ungifted, pious and impious, the diverse individuals of the community are no longer incentives for talking and judging and condemning, and thus excuses for self-justification. They are rather a cause for rejoicing in one another and serving one another. When we stop talking ill about other people, we can actually serve those other people. When we talk bad about somebody, we're not serving them. We're not being Jesus in their lives. We are not ministering to them. To control one's tongue means to see people in the way that God sees them and not as just people to put down. And that ability to practice the way we see each other and control our tongue leads us to practice the ministry of meekness. I do not often think of myself as meek, that's not something we are, are taught to think of. Hey, try to be really meek in life. And when I grow up, I want to be really meek. Blessed are the meek. This is the part where God spoke so hard in my life this week. 
The idea of meekness is so counterintuitive, but Romans tells us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought and not to be wise in our own conceits, but rather that all of our own wisdom is limited by our humanity, but true knowledge of right and wrong comes from Jesus. When we recognize who we are in comparison to who God is, we see that we are nothing special. God loves us and God thinks we're special, but that doesn't mean that we are so great compared to anybody else. When we practice humility, genuine meekness, we will know that it is good for our own will to be broken in the encounter with our neighbors. We will think about what other people are saying. We will consider our sisters and brothers not to be worse than us, but greater. True ministry can't happen until we value the lives of others as being greater than our own. Bonhoeffer asks, how can we possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if we seriously regard their sinfulness as worse than our own? And when we stop talking bad about people, when we start thinking hu- uh, with, with humility about ourselves and practice this idea, idea of thinking of others as greater than ourselves, then we will be able to listen. And I'm gonna close with this. I have tried really hard over the past couple of years to become a better listener because it is another area in which I need growth. That's why I love this book. It's so convicting for me. I'm not, I know I need to be more humble. I know that I need to spend more time in solitude. But another thing I need to do more of is listen. Because as a preacher, I always think, well, when somebody has a question about faith, I should just tell them what I learned in seminary. I wonder if you and your company or relationships or, or friends or school, if somebody has a question for you, you just always give them the answer, Right? I mean, that's, that's just kind of the way we're taught and what, what it's like to be a human and be in a relationship. We just give it, we just help fix things. But often we fail to listen, to hear what really is going on. They might be telling us something on the surface, but deep in their soul, they might be just needing somebody to hear them speak, to sit with them. The ministry of listening means not hearing what somebody has to say and then thinking about what am I gonna say next, but genuinely listening to everything that comes out of their mouth. And that's hard for us because when we disagree with somebody, we don't wanna listen to them, they're wrong. In our political sphere, I mean, how many times have you turned on one of the the political shows on the the news and the people just yelling at each other? There's nobody listening, that's not, listening does not make for good TV, one, and also, it's just hard to do. We wanna be, look, I'm so right, you're so wrong. I don't, you don't listen to me, but I'm not gonna listen to you. Like, that's just who we are. But if we're gonna minister to people, if we're gonna be in community, if we're gonna enjoy life together, if we're gonna be the people God calls us to be, then sometimes what someone needs the most is somebody to just sit with them and listen. I've experienced this a lot with people grieving. And as I come down to the floor here in just a second, we're gonna light some candles today because we're gonna be remembering those who have gone on to glory over the past year, and I'm gonna read their names, and Brianna's gonna light one of the candles for each of them out of the Christ candle here in the center. And um, on the stage up here, there's a lot of candles. And after you receive communion, we invite you, if there's somebody who's passed away in your life over the past year, somebody that you wanna remember, I invite you to come light that candle. And as you do so, I hope you will think about and pray about and consider what does it mean for me to be a person who listens? Because in our grief, often we just want to tell stories about the people who have left us. As a pastor, I've gone over to people's houses after a loved one has been lost or after a tragedy and just sat there and heard people tell story after story about how they loved this person 
or the thing that this listen to them talk out loud about the fact they're struggling with knowing if they're in heaven or not. They weren't looking for me to tell them all the theological implications of their questions. They weren't looking for me to tell all my stories about how I, you know, I wasn't trying to one up. They just want somebody to listen. But it's not only for those who are grieving. There is somebody in your life right now. I know it. I'm, I'm as sure of it as anything else. There's somebody in your life It could be your spouse, it could be your friend, it could be your parent, it could be your children who just needs you to listen to them. And so this is how we're gonna practice life together and be in ministry together when we leave this place. We're gonna start trying to hold our tongue. We're gonna try to be more humble. And we're gonna figure out a way to listen to those in our lives who just need a space to be heard. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you that your word is always speaking to us. Help us to be quick to listen to what you have to say. And let us also practice listening to our sisters and our brothers. In this time, as we celebrate the lives of those who've gone on before us, teach us how to be your children how to make your kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven. Help us lead lives worthy of the callings you've given so that the work we do here will impact others for generations to come as those whom we celebrate live lives worthy of remembering, worthy of your work in this world. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.